We're going to be talking about identity today out of First uh, Peter chapter 4. And so if you have your Bible, you can uh, go ahead and turn there uh, so that you can follow along in Scripture with us. And, uh, and uh, I'd like to take just a little bit of time. This is one of those sermons where it's really, there's just really one kind of simple idea that I want you to grab a hold of. And if, and, and if we can wrestle with that and think through that and see that in Scripture today, uh, Lord willing, it can have a profound impact on our life and the way that we live. And so we talked about uh, soldiers having an identity, those who've given their life in, uh, in, in the pursuit of liberty. Um, I want you to think about this morning, what is your identity? Um, you, may be at a, you may be at a picnic tomorrow. Uh, there might be somebody there that you don't know, a friend or coworker of the host. You're there. You might grab for a hot dog at the same time. Be like, oh, sorry, after you, right? And then what are you naturally going to say to them at that point? Say, so uh, what's your name? What do you do? Right? That, that's kind of our, our typical go-to some of you aren't that forward. You'll go over and say, hey, who's that guy? What, right? Some of us go around the backside. But, but ultimately, uh, it's a really natural thing when you meet somebody and you're put in a position of getting to know them. Kind of the first question is, hey, all right, so, so what's your, what do you do? And ultimately, what you're getting at is that you want to know a little bit more about their identity. You want to know who they are. You want to get to know them. And, and so some of us tie our identity really closely to what we do vocationally. Uh, others don't. And so sometimes somebody will say, well, hey, you know, right now I'm, I'm kind of in between jobs. Or, hey, right now I'm doing this. But ultimately, what I really want to do is this. Ultimately, this is, this is who I really want to be. Or, hey, this is what I do, but you know, what I'm really into is, is cars, or I'm really into music. Or, um, people want to, to understand. Some people are very proud of the fact that their, uh, their identity is tied to their vocation. Others aren't. But, but for you, what is it uh, that, that identifies you? What, what is your identity? If you had to put it in a nutshell, and nutshells are small, right? So it's, you got you to compact it down. But what is your identity? And then, and then I want you to think about the, the relation of this. Think about all the things that you did this past week. And how do those things that you did relate to your identity? How do the activities of this past week relate to your identity and who you are? You holding that in your mind, right? <laughs> um, and now I want you to, to compare that with Jesus. I want you to think about Jesus. What, what are some of the words that the Bible uses to describe Jesus? What are, what are some of his identities? You can help me out here. You can shout them out if, you, if they're not um, blasphemous. You, can, <laughs> you, you feel free to share, right? What does the Bible call Jesus? He's the Son of God, right? What else? Teacher. What else? Man of sorrows. Servant. The way. In the back, what was it? The rabbi, savior. Good. These are all good. Messiah. Jesus had a very firmly rooted identity, right? Jesus, from the time he was born, uh, his identity was deeply uh, and fully established. And so then we think about the things that Jesus did as he walked on the, on the earth in, in his recorded ministry. What are some of the things he did, right? He, he, he did miracles, he fed the 5,000. He walked on water. He turned water into wine. He, he healed the blind and the lame and the sick. He offered forgiveness of sins, right? He preached and he taught. He taught people about the kingdom. He called them to repentance. He proclaimed who God was. Ultimately, he went and he served. And he served his disciples. He served you and I by going to the cross and dying a sinner's death in our place. Now, here's what I want you to think about. What's the relationship between all those actions that he did and his identity that we talked about? 
Ultimately, what I hope you can see is that all the actions flowed out of who he was, right? Everything that Jesus did came out of who he was. He wasn't trying to create an identity. He wasn't trying to earn an identity. He wasn't trying to carve out an identity. He knew exactly who he was, and so everything he did flowed out of that identity. Now, what we do a lot of times is when we talk about our identity, we're talking about something that we aspire to be and that we strive really hard to pursue and to go after, right? Uh, I saw an interview with LeBron James uh, a couple weeks ago uh, after a playoff game where he just played almost every minute and scored over 40 points, and it was just incredible. And the announcer went up to him, and she said, LeBron, like, that was an incredible performance. How do you just do this continually over and over again? And, and he's in the conversation of being the greatest basketball player of all time. And, and so he started to answer, and then he paused for a moment, and he said, he's like, you know, he's like, I, I've been given a lot of gifts from the man upstairs, and he's like, I'm just trying to make the most of them. I'm just trying to do, I'm just trying to do the best with what I got. And so there was this, this kind of humble recognition of like, hey, I practice really hard, I work really hard, I lift weights, I take jump shots, I do all those things, but not everybody could do what I do and then have the results that I have. There's an element in it that's just been gifted to me. I've been given this incredible gift of physical talent, and I'm striving to make the most of it uh, to become the person that I feel like I was made to be. I don't, I don't know LeBron's state with Jesus. I don't know any of that thing. I'm not, I'm not claiming here. I'm just using him as an example of, of how someone does that. And so the question for us this morning is how do we live out of our identity? How do we let our identity be what drives us forward? Uh, I just had a conversation with some people this week. Uh, the book of Ephesians, many of you know, I love to point people to the book of Ephesians as just a great way to understand what it means to be a Christian. And there's something really interesting in that book. It begins in chapter 1 with these incredible statements of identity, right? He says, you are holy and blameless. Uh, you are loved. You've been redeemed. You've been forgiven. You've been adopted as sons and daughters. God is lavishly pouring out his grace and mercy. So there's all these incredible identity things. And then in chapter 2, it gets into... You were dead in your sins. You were separated from God because of your rebellion and sin. But God, because of his great love for you, sent Jesus to die in your place so that you could receive salvation as a gift. And in that conversation, I was talking to him, and I was like, yeah, you know, I, honestly, I was like, I kind of wish chapter 2 came first because, uh, because as I'm trying to teach and explain it to people, it would make more sense that we start with chapter 2. How do you become a Christian, and then what do you like? But, but see, this is why God's so much smarter than me, right? God knows that it's about identity. It's about living out of our identity. And so chapter one is there to say, here's what it looks like to be in a right relationship with God. Here's what that looks like. Here's the fruit of that. Here's the peace that comes with that. Here's the, the encouragement that you get when you are rightly aligned with God. Now, now that you see how valuable and beautiful and worthwhile that is, how do you attain it? Well, chapter two says you don't you can't work for it. You can't earn it. It's not out of your works, lest anyone should boast. It is a free gift that Jesus gives to you. And then once you receive that and understand that, then, then chapters 3 through, through 6 go on to explain, okay, now here's what you do. What do you do in light of that? Now that you know that Jesus gifted you this identity, it's this beautiful, royal, rich identity, now this is the way that we live. And man, so many of the trials and, and difficulties that we experience in life are because we get those things out of order. We're striving to earn an identity, to deserve an identity, to prove ourselves worthy. But the Bible calls us to live out of the identity that it's already been given to us. And so we pick up this line of thought 
in, in 1 Peter chapter 4. And, and, and beginning in verse 1, it says this. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourself with the same way that Jesus thought. When Jesus was feeding the 5,000, he didn't think like, oh man, I hope God's seeing this. I hope he's going to, I hope he's really going to, like, this is going to make me worthy. Uh, this is going to make him love me. This is going to make me accept him as his son. You know, when he was going to the cross, it wasn't like, man, God, I hope this giant gesture of sacrifice and humility will finally make me approved in your eyes. No, right? The first thing that, that scripture shows is Jesus comes and he's baptized and he comes up out of the water and, and God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, <laughs> Right? Identity affirmed, established, confirmed. Everything that came after that flowed out of that identity. And he says that I want you to arm yourself with that same way of thinking. When you struggle and suffer, resist the temptation to say like, ah, I'm, I'm struggling and suffering because God doesn't love me. He's not accepting me. I haven't been working hard enough. I haven't, I haven't been living in a way that was pleasing enough to him. I'm just going to have to work harder. I'm just going to have to get back in his good graces so this suffering will end. That's not, what, that's not the way Jesus thought. That's not the way that we should think. And so it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Essentially what it's saying is this, when we suffer, what it does is it, it wipes away this, this illusion that the purpose of life is to get as much comfort and happiness as I can attain for myself, right? If Jesus was after all the comfort and, and, um, and just satisfaction that he could obtain selfishly for himself, he would not have done the things that we see in Scripture, <laughs> He would have taken a completely different course, but he knew that that wasn't the purpose of life. And when we suffer a little bit, it's almost like a wake-up call. It's like a smelling salt. It, it, it's like, oh, wait, yeah, I've been on this path of just trying to pursue comfort and insulation and protection, and all of a sudden I'm reminded, I'm not guaranteed any of those things. And when I look at the one man who lived life perfectly, that wasn't what he experienced. Okay, yeah, this isn't about my pleasure. It's not about my selfish desires and ambitions and my passions. It's about God and, and pursuing God's will. And so essentially, he's saying, use suffering as smelling salts to remind you of what life is really all about. And if you have been united with Christ, as Keith preached about last week, if you've been baptized and raised to new life and you were united with Christ, then take on the same way of thinking that Christ had. He says in verse 3, For the time is past, that is past, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. Jesus went to parties, right? He was the life of the party a lot of times, but he didn't live for parties. Jesus ate and enjoyed food, but he didn't live for food. Remember when, when Satan came and tempted him after 40 days of fasting, he said, hey, turn these, these rocks into bread. Now, pause for a minute and think about this, right? If you had miraculous superpowers to transform things, <laughs> would you turn rocks into bread? 
I would probably use it for something a little bit more exciting, right? Like, I, I would turn, like, a, a rock into, like, the Easton Buffet, or, I, you know, I mean, I would, I would really go, you know, I would go for something a little bit bigger, but it, it shows how hungry Jesus was in that moment that there's this temptation, like, hey, just use your, use your power to turn these rocks into bread, right? But Jesus demonstrated, hey, I don't live for bread alone. But how much of our world around us lives for bread alone, right? They're living for the next party. They're living for the next great thing they can eat or the next, the next time that they can drink. He had family that he loved, but he didn't make them his idol. He turned water into wine, but Jesus was never drunk. He could enjoy the good things of creation, the good things of this world, the things that reflect the good creator without letting them become idols in his heart, without letting them own him. And the things that tempt us today are really not that different than they were 2,000 years ago. Is that right? I mean, these, this, this list of things, right? Living in sensuality, indulging our passions. Our culture today says the same thing they said back then. Whatever your heart most desires, that's what you should go for. Why would you, why would you withhold that? That's, that's your identity. You are identified by what your heart most desires is what the world would tell us. But God says something totally different. He says you are identified by who I've made you to be. And you should desire and want your passions and desires should align with mine because that's when you are most fully you. You're most fully yourself when your heart is most closely aligned with my heart. And I love that it ends. It says, uh, the last thing to mention is drink parties and lawless idolatry. Every one of these things is an idol. We don't think about it that way. But... But they become our functional savers, saviors, right? It's like, hey, I want to celebrate. Something great happened. Let me go have a drink. Oh, man, something really terrible happened. It was a horrible day. Let me go have a drink, right? Like, what do you run to when things are great or when things are difficult? And a lot of times, that's your functional savior. It might be shopping. It might be video games. It might be whatever the escape is. But, and it's not wrong to have hobbies. It's not wrong to have things to blow off tension and stress. It's not, you know, it could be working out. It could be anything. But it becomes that thing that you can't live without. If that was taken from your life, uh, the center of your life would disappear. It's a silly thing, but, but I love coffee, right? And, uh, and so there comes a time where I can get to the point where I'm like, man, I don't know if I can function without coffee. And then I'm like, wait a minute. I don't know if I can function without coffee. That's not good, right? And so every once in a while, I'll go on this like 30-day where I'll just like sit it down just to prove to myself that I don't have to have it, that I get to have it, but I don't have to have it. And, and that expands through all of our life. Are there things in your life that you feel like you have to have, and if you don't have it, your life will be incomplete? Well, if that thing is anything other than Jesus, then you revealed an idol in your heart, and it's something to repent and, and to lay out before him. Ultimately, Peter says three things about, about the world, the pursuits of the world and, and their lifestyle. Number one, he says that they are surprised when, they don't, when you don't join them. They don't understand. Yo, man, we're going to go to Vegas this weekend. Whatever happens there stays there. It is going to be crazy. That guy's paying for everything. Come on, let's go. And you're like, nah, 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 nah. That, that doesn't sound appealing. What? <laughs> it's everything you could want. How could you not want to do that? I've been to Vegas a few times, right, so I'm not judging, okay? But, but, but I recognize that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, so that, that altered my behavior while I was there, okay? So the world, is this not true? When you go to a party, people are like, man, when I was a kid, I came up through high school, and um, I, at that time I was more of a moralist than I was 
an authentic, deeply gospel-rooted follower of Jesus, but I knew enough of the gospel to know that there was things I should do and things I shouldn't do, and I was really hardline on drinking was one of those I wasn't going to drink when I was underage, and so I would go to these parties, and I, I mean, have never been offered so much free beer, right? Like, dude, take a beer, take a beer. We just used all the money we could scrape together to buy this, but we want to give you one. We want you in with us, right? Why is it that the party crowd always wants to invite people? Why is it the people with drugs who spend a lot of money on it like, hey, man, you want to try some of this? <laughs> if it was a pizza, they wouldn't offer it to you, right? It's this weird thing of like, hey, if, if you do this with me, then we both agree that this is acceptable. This is okay. This is, we're affirming this behavior. The world wants to join us in with them, and they don't understand when we don't, and so then they begin to malign you if you refuse. Oh, what, you're too good for us? Oh, you think you're better than me? You're judging me? Why you got to judge me, right? You didn't say anything. You just like walked into the party and all of a sudden they're just like, whoa, what's, what's your deal, man, right? The world will malign you because they don't understand you. But ultimately what he says is this, that they will face judgment. Some of us get this crazy idea in our head that like the ideal scenario would be to just live a life of wild, sinful, hedonistic, passionate self-indulgence and then kind of get a warning sign that, that our time was coming to an end and then being able to pray like, oh, Lord, please forgive me, accept me, and I want to go to heaven. And if you could pull that off, that you would have done the greatest job with your life that you could do. Now, most of us wouldn't admit it here in church, but, but the, that, that is the way our mind works sometimes. But, but what he says is everything that we do will be brought before the judge, that we'll have to give an account for it. And I can promise you, friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, if one day you will be a follower of Jesus, there's not a single sin that you will indulge in that you will not later regret, that you won't look back and say, you won't say, man, I'm glad I got away with that while I could. You're going to say, oh, why, man, if I had known the devastation that was going to cause, if I would have known the brokenness, if I had known the ripple effects, the way that my sin was going to impact people's lives that I might not even see, if I had understood the way I was wasting my time and my talents and treasures, when I think back about all the things that I could have done that would have glorified and honored and served God, and yet I wasted that time on that, I promise you, friends, you will not regret a single sin that you don't commit here on earth. We will stand before a judge, and sin is, is heavy and it's costly. Verse 6 is, is somewhat confusing to understand, right? For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that they're judged in the flesh the way people are. They might live in the spirit the way God does. Uh, scholars and commentators have a number of ways of trying to explain or understand this. The reality is, is it's a difficult verse to understand. Um, but, but many agree, and I, and I tend to agree, that, that what he's talking about here is that for those who had heard the gospel and then were killed for that, right? So, so there, Paul, Peter's writing to people who were being executed for their faith in Jesus. And so if the gospel was preached to them, and then because of their profession of faith in Jesus, they were judged as men, they were taken and they were executed, they were, they were burned at the stake, they were crucified, they were thrown to the lions. They were judged as men, but ultimately that was not the end, <laughs> that they would go on and to live in the spirit with God. That's why the gospel is proclaimed to us. So what is your mindset? Do you have the mindset of Christ? Do you think about your life? Do you think about your struggles? Do you think about your challenges and opportunities the way that Christ does? Do you let your identity drive the way that you live and act? Is the deepest cause of the actions that you take 
who you know you are in and through Jesus Christ. And he continues on. And so what he does in the beginning of verse 7 is he begins to describe what those actions should look like. But it's so pivotal that we understand the first part of it, right? If we're not adopting the mindset of Christ, if we're not thinking about things the way that Jesus thinks about things, then we're just engaging in moralism. We're basically just saying, all right, what are the good things that I have to do so that God will accept me? And that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about if you have been accepted by Christ, if you know he is your savior, if you know your identity in him, then these are the things that you are going to do. The end of all things at hand is at hand, verse 7. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the first thing that we saw is that we are called to live in the same mindset that Jesus had. The second thing we see is that as we seek the kingdom, there is work that flows out of that mindset. The work of prayer, right? He says we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. And Peter keeps talking about this throughout the letter. He says, your prayers are powerful. They're, they're, they're important. They do incredible things. But when you engage in sin, it limits the power and the effectiveness of your prayer life. And how many of us know this, right, that, that when, we're, when we're just wrestling in sin, that we're just struggling with something, that we're having a hard time getting victory over in our life, what impact does that have on your prayer life? Every time you go to pray, you're like, oh, man, God, I even hate to bother you because I know you're, I know you're disappointed in me. Uh, I, know, I, know, I, know, I don't even know if you're going to hear me because I know that you know that I'm struggling with it, right? It, 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 it undercuts our confidence. It undercuts... Um, uh, our joy, and what it does is it sets our eyes squarely on ourselves. Sometimes even in the midst of, of a struggle and a sin, all we can even think to pray about is our own struggle and our own sin, and we keep our eyes on ourselves, and we don't see what God is doing all around us. So he says, hey, be self-controlled, be sober-minded, so that you can live with your head up, so that you can see what I'm doing, and you can pray for it, and you can join me in the things that I am doing. When you selfishly engage in sin, then you're just bringing the focus way down only onto yourself. But I want you to live with your head up. So, so there's the work of prayer. There's the work of love. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Earnestly means with sincere and intense conviction, to do it seriously. Do you love people with sincere and intense conviction, with a seriousness? How serious is your love? Trials are, are a pressure cooker, and he's been talking a lot about trials, right? And, and so there's a, a, a solid marriage that's going along well, and then all of a sudden it comes along financial struggles, or all of a sudden they, they God uh, blesses them with a child, but the child brings all these burdens and, and sleepless nights and, and difficulties and challenges, right? And what happens? The marriage gets strained at the seams. Any weaknesses, right, they kind of start to be exposed. They start to erupt, right? Trials are a pressure cooker. They expose it, but love does the opposite. Love covers over a multitude of sins. We see this in a, in a basic way when a couple first starts dating, right? They, they can see no wrong in this person that they're infatuated with, right? They're like, yeah, yeah, I know he chews with his mouth open and, and he doesn't shower very often, but man, it's just, it's like kind of a manly smell. I kind of like it, right? Like, yeah, 
you embrace all these weaknesses in this person that you're infatuated with because your love is covering over that multitude of sins. Now, there's a whole other depth of love that says, hey, I love you even though you stink, right? <laughs> that, that's a whole other deeper layer of love. But love covers over a multitude of sins. How many times when you're in conflict with somebody do you go up to them and say, hey, listen, I have some things I want to say. I, I want you to know up front, I love you. I'm having this conversation with you because I love you and I want our relationship to be restored and I want us to be in a place where we are right with God. Man, if you start a conversation that way, the odds are pretty good that it's going to go in a good direction. That person is going to be receptive to what you want to say. Love covers over a multitude of sin. Love says, I'm sorry, I care more about you than I do about being proven right. Love restores, it reconciles, it makes up for broken things. Look at the love of Jesus on the cross as our ultimate example, right? The love of Jesus poured out on the cross covered over a multitude of sins. He says there's the work of hospitality. He says show hospitality without grumbling. And, and if you're ever interested, uh, do, a, do a word search on grumbling. God hates grumbling about as much as anything that I can identify in Scripture. He, especially in that period of the Exodus, right? The, the Israelites were brought out of Egypt and they just grumbled and grumbled, and God, it drove God crazy. Because here's how the dictionary defines grumbling. It's to complain or protest about something in a bad-tempered but typically muted way. I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I'm going to complain, and I'm going to whine, but I'm not actually going to do something about it. I'm just going to kick the dirt, talk to myself, maybe whisper it to somebody else. Can you believe they're making us do this? God, I can't believe it. Right? Grumbling is so ineffective. All it does is just wallow in disappointment. And he says, hey, I want you to be hospitable to people. And this was really important in this time, in this culture, that the people, it was not uncommon at all to invite strangers into your home because we didn't have Travelocity and Hotels.com and Captain Obvious to help us find a place to stay, right? We didn't have Airbnb. Uh, but what we had was, was Christian community. And you'd go and you'd come into a town and you'd be like, hey, are there other believers here? Could I stay with you, right? And, and it, was, it, was, it was valued to be hospitable. But he said, hey, if you're going to do it, do it. Well, do it with a smile on your face. Don't grumble because you've, you've stolen all your joy. He talks about the work of stewardship. I love this, right? He talks about the gifts that you've been giving and using your gifts. And here's the crazy thing. If you say, man, that person is really a gifted speaker, sometimes we can flip it around and start to think that it's the gift that that speaker is giving to you, right? Uh, as someone who has giftings, you might think that it's your gift to the world, but that's not what it means to be gifted. <laughs> to be gifted is, it means that you've received a gift from God that he's called you to steward for the blessing and benefit of others. If you're a gifted artist, if you're a gifted teacher, if you're a gifted listener, if you're a gifted communicator, that is a gift that you've been given and to, to him who much is given, much is expected, Right? And so you are called to use that gift for the glory of God and the benefit of others. He talks about two types of gifts. He says speaking gifts. If you speak, you're supposed to speak as if you're speaking the very words of God. That gives a gravity to it. That gives a focus to it. If you're, if you're a preacher or you're a small group leader or you're a Sunday school teacher or you're a counselor, if your gift is to speak, do it knowing that you're speaking as if you're speaking the very words of God into someone else's life. That, that's a heavy burden. It's something we should take seriously, and it draws attention not to us, but to God. 
Don't use your gift to bring yourself glory. Use your gift to bring God glory. And he also says these gifts of service by the strength that God supplies. Man, we have some gifted servants in this church. We have people that just serve and give and, and just do whatever is necessary. And as long as it's connected to Jesus and they're serving out of the strength that he's giving them, they will have joy in it. It will bring them satisfaction. They will say, man, I'm operating in my gifting. I'm doing what Jesus made me to do, and he's getting the glory, and I'm so excited about it. But as soon as you start doing it in your own strength, then you want recognition from other people. Man, I went out there in the rain, and I parked cars all Sunday morning, and I don't think a single person said thanks to me. Ugh. I'm angry. I might go over here and grumble a little bit. Oh, I can't believe I had to kick that. Right? When we serve out of our gifting in the way that God calls us to do it, our, we're doing it for him, and, and, the, and the joy and the love and the, and the appreciation comes from him. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't say thank you. You should thank every person that's out there parking the car, greeting you on the way in, making your coffee, serving your kids. Thank every one of them. Bless them, right? Be a vessel of God's blessing. Maybe you might be the vessel that he wants to use to thank them for what they're doing. But for us, as we're doing it, we shouldn't expect anything from anyone. We're doing it for God. We're stewarding the gift that he gave us. And ultimately, it ends in this. It says, why should we do this? So that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. That's the mindset that Jesus had. He said, I'm going to live my life to glorify God. I'm going to let the suffering glorify God. I'm going to let the great joys and, and triumphs glorify God. I'm going to do everything to glorify God. Do you live with that same mindset? The, the first step in this is really not to go out and do anything. The first step in this is to evaluate, hey, what are my heart's motivations? Have I become a child of God? Is that identity that we've been talking about today, does that, is that true of me? If you're here and, and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, if you're exploring Christianity, if you're trying to figure out what it's all about, it doesn't begin by doing anything other than believing that Jesus is who he says he is, believing that he loved you enough to give his very life for you, and believing that because of what he did, that your sins can be forgiven. Begin there. Don't start trying to clean your life up. Begin with a relationship with Jesus. Begin with getting that identity that begins in the book of Ephesians, that identity of being blameless and, and loved and restored and redeemed and forgiven and adopted. Begin there by receiving the free gift that Jesus is seeking to give to you. And then you'll be positioned to go out and bless the world.